Section 11 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4 by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 7, Part 1. Of the beginning and rise of the Romish papacy, till it attained a height by which the liberty of the church was destroyed, and all true rule overthrown. There are five heads in this chapter. 1. The patriarchate given and confirmed to the bishop of Rome, first by the council of Nice, and afterwards by that of Chalcedon, though by no means approved of by other bishops, was the commencement of the papacy, sections 1 through 4. 2. The church at Rome, by taking pious exiles under its protection, and also thereby protecting wicked men who fled to her, helped forward the mystery of iniquity, although at that time neither the ordination of bishops, nor admonitions and censures, nor the right of convening councils, nor the right of receiving appeals, belonged to the Roman bishop, whose profane meddling with these things was condemned by Gregory, sections 5 through 13. 3. After the Council of Turin, disputes arose as to the authority of the Metropolitans, disgraceful strife between the patriarchs of Rome and Constantinople. The vile assassin Phocas put an end to these brawls at the instigation of Boniface, sections 14 to 18. 4. To the dishonest arts of Boniface succeeded fouler frauds devised in more modern times, and expressly condemned by Gregory and Bernard, Sections 19-21. to 21. 5. The papacy at length appeared complete in all its parts, the seat of Antichrist. Its impiety, execrable tyranny, and wickedness portrayed, sections 23-30. Sections. 1. First part of the chapter, in which the commencement of the papacy is assigned to the Council of Nice. In subsequent councils, other bishops presided. No attempt then made to claim the first place. 2. Though the Roman bishop presided in the council of Chalcedon, this was owing to special circumstances, the same right not given to his successors in other councils. 3. The ancient fathers did not give the title of primate to the Roman bishop. 4. Gregory was vehement in opposition to the title when claimed by the bishop of Constantinople, and did not claim it for himself. 5. Second part of the chapter, explaining the ambitious attempts of the Roman see to obtain the primacy, their reception of pious exiles, hearing the appeals and complaints of heretics, their ambition in this respect offensive to the African church. 6. The power of the Roman bishops in ordaining bishops, appointing councils, deciding controversies, etc., confined to their own patriarchate. 7. If they censured other bishops, they themselves were censured in their turn. 8. They had no right of calling provincial councils except within their own boundaries. The calling of a universal council belonged solely to the emperor. 9. Appeal to the Roman see not acknowledged by other bishops, stoutly resisted by the bishops of France and Africa, the impudence and falsehood of the Roman pontiff detected. 10 proof from history that the Roman had no jurisdiction over other churches. 11. The decretal epistles of no avail in support of this usurped jurisdiction. 12. 
the authority of the Roman bishop extended in the time of Gregory. Still it only consisted in aiding other bishops with their own consent, or at the command of the emperor. 13. Even the extent of jurisdiction, thus voluntarily conferred, objected to by Gregory as interfering with better duties. 14. Third part of the chapter, showing the increase of the power of the papacy in defining the limits of metropolitans. This gave rise to the decree of the Council of Turin. This decree haughtily annulled by innocent. 15. Hence the great struggle for precedency between the sees of Rome and Constantinople. The pride and ambition of the Roman bishops unfolded. 16. Many attempts of the bishop of Constantinople to deprive the bishop of Rome of the primacy. 17. Phocus murders the emperor and gives Rome the primacy. 18. The papal tyranny shortly after established. Bitter complaints by Bernard. 19. Fourth part of the chapter. Altered appearance of the Roman see since the days of Gregory. 20. The present demands of the Romanists not formerly conceded. Fictions of Gregory the Ninth and Martin. 21. Without mentioning the opposition of Cyprian, of councils, and historical facts, the claims now made were condemned by Gregory himself. 22. The abuses of which Gregory and Bernard complained now increased and sanctioned. 23. The fifth and last part of the chapter, containing the chief answer to the claims of the papacy, that is, that the Pope is not a bishop in the house of God. This answer confirmed by an enumeration of the essential parts of the Episcopal office. 24. A second confirmation by appeal to the institution of Christ. A third confirmation a contrario, that is, that in doctrine and morals the Roman pontiff is altogether different from a true bishop. Conclusion, that Rome is not the apostolic see, but the papacy. 25. Proof from Daniel and Paul that the Pope is Antichrist. 26. Rome could not now claim the primacy, even though she had formerly been the first see, especially considering the base trafficking in which she has engaged. 27. Personal character of popes, irreligious opinions held by some of them. 28. John the Twenty-Second, heretical in regard to the immortality of the soul. His name, therefore, ought to be expunged from the catalogue of popes, or rather, there is no foundation for the claim of perpetuity of faith in the Roman see. 29. Some Roman pontiffs atheists, or sworn enemies of religion, their immoral lives, practice of the cardinals and Romish clergy. 30. Cardinals were formerly merely presbyters of the Roman Church, and far inferior to bishops. As they now are, they have no true and legitimate office in the Church. Conclusion 1. In regard to the antiquity of the primacy of the Roman See, there is nothing in favor of its establishment more ancient than the decree of the Council of Nice, by which the first place among the patriarchs is assigned to the Bishop of Rome, and he is enjoined to take care of the suburban churches. While the council, in dividing between him and the other patriarchs, assigns the proper limits of each, it certainly does not appoint him head of all, but only one of the chief. Vitus and Vicentius attended on the part of Julius, who then governed the Roman church, and to them the fourth place was given. 
I ask, if Julius was acknowledged the head of the church, would his legates have been consigned to the fourth place? Would Athanasius have presided in the council where a representative of the hierarchical order should have been most conspicuous? In the council of Ephesus, it appears that Celestinus, who was then Roman pontiff, used a cunning device to secure the dignity of his see. For when he sent his deputies, he made Cyril of Alexandria, who otherwise would have presided, his substitute. Why that commission, but just that his name might stand connected with the first see? His legates sit in an inferior place, are asked their opinion along with others, and subscribe in their order, while at the same time his name is coupled with that of the patriarch of Alexandria. What shall I say of the second council of Ephesus, where, while the deputies of Leo were present, the Alexandrian patriarch Dioscorus presided in his own right? They will object that this was not an orthodox council, since by it the venerable Flavianus was condemned, Eutyches acquitted, and his heresy approved. Yet when the council was met, and the bishops distributed the places among themselves, the deputies of the Roman church sat among the others just as in a sacred and lawful council. Still they contend not for the first place, but yield it to another. This they never would have done if they had thought it their own by right. For the Roman bishops were never ashamed to stir up the greatest strife in contending for honours, and for this cause alone, to trouble and harass the church with many pernicious contests. But because Leo saw that it would be too extravagant to ask the first place for his legates, he omitted to do it. 2. Next came the Council of Chalcedon, in which, by concession of the emperor, the legates of the Roman church occupied the first place. But Leo himself confesses that this was an extraordinary privilege for when he asks it of the emperor Marcion and Pulcheria Augusta, he does not mention that it is due to him, but only pretends that the eastern bishops who presided in the council of Ephesus had thrown all into confusion, and made a bad use of their power. Therefore, seeing there was a need of a grave moderator, and it was not probable that those who had once been so fickle and tumultuous would be fit for this purpose, he requests that, because of the fault and unfitness of others, the office of governing should be transferred to him. That which is asked as a special privilege, and out of the usual order, certainly is not due by a common law. When it is only pretended that there is need of a new president, because the former ones had behaved themselves improperly, it is plain that the thing asked was not previously done, and ought not to be made perpetual, being done only in respect of a present danger." The Roman pontiff, therefore, holds the first place in the council of Chalcedon, not because it is due to his see, but because the council is in want of a grave and fit moderator, while those who ought to have presided exclude themselves by their intemperance and passion. This statement the successor of Leo approved by his procedure, for when he sent his legates to the fifth council, that of Constantinople, which was held long after, he did not quarrel for the first seat, but readily allowed Menas, the patriarch of Constantinople, to preside. In like manner, in the council of Carthage, at which Augustine was present, we perceive that not the legates of the Roman see, but Aurelius, the archbishop of the place, presided, although there was then a question as to the authority of the Roman pontiff. Nay, even in Italy itself, a universal council was held, that of Aquileia, 
at which the Roman bishop was not present. Ambrose, who was then in high favor with the emperor, presided, and no mention is made of the Roman pontiff. Therefore, owing to the dignity of Ambrose, the see of Milan was then more illustrious than that of Rome. 3. In regard to the mere title of primate and other titles of pride, of which that pontiff now makes a wondrous boast, it is not difficult to understand how and in what way they crept in. Cyprian often makes mention of Cornelius, nor does he distinguish him by any other name than that of brother or fellow bishop or colleague. When he writes to Stephen, the successor of Cornelius, he not only makes him the equal of himself and others, but addresses him in harsh terms, charging him at one time with presumption, at another with ignorance. After Cyprian, we have the judgment of the whole African church on the subject. For the council of Carthage enjoined that none should be called chief of the priests, or first bishop, but only bishop of the first see. But any one who will examine the more ancient records will find that the Roman pontiff was then contented with the common appellation of brother. Certainly, as long as the true and pure form of the church continued, all these names of pride on which the Roman see afterwards began to plume itself were altogether unheard of. None knew what was meant by the supreme pontiff and the only head of the church on earth. Had the Roman bishop presumed to assume any such title, there were right-hearted men who would immediately have repressed his folly. Jerome, seeing he was a Roman presbyter, was not slow to proclaim the dignity of his church in as far as fact and the circumstances of the times permitted, and yet we see how he brings it under due subordination. Quote, if authority is asked, the world is greater than a city. Why produce me the custom of one city? Why vindicate a small number with whom superciliousness has originated against the laws of the church? Wherever the bishop be, whether at Rome or Eugubium, or Constantinople or Regium, the merit is the same, and the priesthood the same. The power of riches or the humbleness of poverty do not make a bishop superior or inferior. End quote. 4. The controversy concerning the title of universal bishop arose at length in the time of Gregory, and was occasioned by the ambition of John of Constantinople, for he wished to make himself universal, a thing which no other had ever attempted. In that controversy, Gregory does not allege that he is deprived of a right which belonged to him, but he strongly insists that the appellation is profane, nay blasphemous, nay the forerunner of Antichrist. Quote, the whole church falls from its state if he who is called universal falls. End quote. Again, quote, it is very difficult to bear patiently that one who is our brother and fellow bishop should alone be called bishop, while all others are despised. But in this pride of his, what else is intimated but that the days of Antichrist are already near? For he is imitating him who, despising the company of angels, attempted to ascend the pinnacle of greatness. He elsewhere says to Eulogius of Alexandria and Anastasius of Antioch, quote, None of my predecessors ever desired to use this profane term for if one patriarch is called universal, it is derogatory to the name of patriarch in others. But far be it from any Christian mind to wish to arrogate to itself that which would in any degree, however slight, impair the honor of his brethren. Quote. Quote, 
to consent to that impious term is nothing else than to lose the faith. End quote. Quote, what we owe to the preservation of the unity of the faith is one thing, what we owe to the suppression of pride is another. I speak with confidence, for every one that calls himself, or desires to be called, universal priest, is by his pride a forerunner of Antichrist, because he acts proudly in preferring himself to others. Thus again, in a letter to Anastasius of Antioch, quote, I said that he could not have peace with us unless he corrected the presumption of a superstitious and haughty term which the first apostate invented. And, to say nothing of the injury to your honor, if one bishop is called universal, the whole church goes to ruin when that universal bishop falls. But when he writes that this honor was offered to Leo in the Council of Chalcedon, he says what has no semblance of truth. Nothing of the kind is found among the acts of that council. And Leo himself, who in many letters impugns the degree which was then made in honor of the sea at Constantinople, undoubtedly would not have omitted this argument, which was the most plausible of all, if it was true that he himself repudiated what was given to him. One who, in other respects, was rather too desirous of honor, would not have omitted what would have been to his praise. Gregory, therefore, is incorrect in saying that that title was conferred on the Roman see by the Council of Chalcedon, not to mention how ridiculous it is for him to say that it proceeded from that sacred council, and yet to term it wicked, profane, nefarious, proud, and blasphemous, nay, devised by the devil, and promulgated by the herald of Antichrist. And yet he adds that his predecessor refused it, lest by that which was given to one individually all priests should be deprived of their due honor. In another place he says, quote, None ever wished to be called by such a name, none arrogated this rash name to himself, lest, by the seizing on the honor of supremacy in the office of the pontificate, he might seem to deny it to all his brethren. Quote. 5. I come now to jurisdiction, which the Roman pontiff asserts as an incontrovertible proposition that he possesses over all churches. I am aware of the great disputes which anciently existed on this subject, for there never was a time when the Roman see did not aim at authority over other churches. And here it will not be out of place to investigate the means by which she gradually attained to some influence." I am not now referring to that unlimited power which she seized at a comparatively recent period. The consideration of that we will defer to its own place. But it is worth while here briefly to show in what way, and by what means, she formerly raised herself, so as to arrogate some authority over other churches. When the churches of the East were troubled and rent by the factions of the Arians, under the emperors Constantius and Constans, sons of Constantine the Great, and Athanasius, the principal defender of the Orthodox faith, had been driven from his see, the calamity obliged him to come to Rome, in order that by the authority of this see he might both repress the rage of his enemies, and confirm the Orthodox under their distress. He was honorably received by Julius, who was then bishop, and engaged those of the West to undertake the defense of his cause. Therefore, when the Orthodox stood greatly in need of external aid, and perceived that their chief protection lay in the Roman see, 
they willingly bestowed upon it all the authority they could. But the utmost extent of this was, that its communion was held in high estimation, and it was deemed ignominious to be excommunicated by it. Dishonest bad men afterwards added much to its authority, for when they wished to escape lawful tribunals, they betook themselves to Rome as an asylum. Accordingly, if any presbyter was condemned by his bishop, or any bishop was condemned by the synod of his province, he appealed to Rome. These appeals the Roman bishops received more eagerly than they ought, because it seemed a species of extraordinary power to interpose in matters with which their connection was so very remote. Thus when Eutyches was condemned by Flavanius, bishop of Constantinople, he complained to Leo that the sentence was unjust. He, nothing loath, no less presumptuously than abruptly, undertook the patronage of a bad cause, and inveighed bitterly against Flavanius, as having condemned an innocent man without due investigation. And thus the effect of Leo's ambition was, that for some time the impiety of Eutyches was confirmed. It is certain that in Africa the same thing repeatedly occurred, for whenever any miscreant had been condemned by his ordinary judge, he fled to Rome, and brought many calumnious charges against his own people. The Roman see was always ready to interpose. This dishonesty obliged the African bishops to decree that no one should carry an appeal beyond sea under pain of excommunication. 6. Be this as it may, let us consider what right or authority the Roman see then possessed. Ecclesiastical power may be reduced to four heads, that is, ordination of bishops, calling of councils, hearing of appeals or jurisdiction, inflicting monetary chastisements or censures. All ancient councils enjoin that bishops shall be ordained by their own metropolitans. They nowhere enjoin an application to the Roman bishop except in his own patriarchate. Gradually, however, it became customary for all Italian bishops to go to Rome for consecration, with the exception of the metropolitans, who did not allow themselves to be thus brought into subjection. But when any metropolitan was to be ordained, the Roman bishop sent one of his presbyters merely to be present, but not to preside. An example of this kind is extant in Gregory, in the consecration of Constantius of Milan, after the death of Lawrence. I do not, however, think that this was a very ancient custom. At first, as a mark of respect and good will, they sent deputies to one another to witness the ordination and attest their communion. What was thus voluntary afterwards began to be regarded as necessary. However this be, it is certain that anciently the Roman bishop had no power of ordaining except within the bounds of his own patriarchate, that is, as a canon of the Council of Nice expresses it, in suburban churches. To ordination was added the sending of a synodical epistle, but this implied no authority. The patriarchs were accustomed, immediately after consecration, to attest their faith by a formal writing, in which they declared that they assented to sacred and orthodox councils. Thus, by rendering an account of their faith, they mutually approved of each other. If the Roman bishop had received this confession from others, and not given it, he would therein have been acknowledged superior. But when it behoved to give as well as to receive, and to be subject to the common law, this was a sign of equality, not of lordship. 
Of this we have an example in a letter of Gregory to Anastasius and Syriac of Constantinople, and in another letter to all the patriarchs together. 7. Next come admonitions or censures. These the Roman bishops anciently employed towards others, and in their turn received. Irenaeus sharply rebuked Victor for rashly troubling the church with a pernicious schism for a matter of no moment. He submitted without objecting. Holy bishops were then wont to use the freedom as brethren of admonishing and rebuking the Roman prelate when he happened to err. He in his turn, when the case required, reminded others of their duty and reprimanded them for their faults. For Cyprian, when he exhorts Stephen to admonish the bishops of France, does not found on his larger power, but on the common right which priests have in regard to each other. I ask if Stephen had then presided over France, would not Cyprian have said, Check them, for they are yours? But his language is very different. Quote, the brotherly fellowship which binds us together requires that we should mutually admonish each other. End quote and we see also with what severity of expression a man otherwise of a mild temper inveighs against Stephen himself when he thinks him chargeable with insolence. Therefore it does not yet appear in this respect that the Roman bishop possessed any jurisdiction over those who did not belong to his province. 8. In regard to calling of councils, it was the duty of every metropolitan to assemble a provincial synod at stated times. Here the Roman bishop had no jurisdiction, while the emperor alone could summon a general council. Had any of the bishops attempted this, not only would those out of the province not have obeyed the call, but a tumult would instantly have arisen. Therefore the emperor gave intimation to all alike to attend. Socrates, indeed, relates that Julius expostulated with the eastern bishops for not having called him to the council of Antioch, seeing it was forbidden by the canons that anything should be decided without the knowledge of the Roman bishop. But who does not perceive that this is to be understood of those decrees which bind the whole church? At the same time, it is not strange if, in deference both to the antiquity and largeness of the city, and the dignity of the sea, no universal decree concerning religion should be made in the absence of the bishop of Rome, provided he did not refuse to be present." but what has this to do with the dominion of the whole church? For we deny not that he was one of the principal bishops, though we are unwilling to admit what the Romanists now contend for, that is, that he had power over all. End of section 11